Turn with me now in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. If you were following along in the family worship guide, you may have noticed an epic typo. On the night that you were to read Luke chapter 2, it said, read Luke chapter 2, verses 4 through 52, which is a very long reading, common at this time of year. But not what I meant. I left a zero off. It should have been Luke chapter 2, verses 40 through 52, which is what we will now read today. Luke chapter 2, verses 40 through 52. Perhaps the deductive among you noticed that the questions in the family worship guide started with verse 40, so you put two and two together, you figured it out. Maybe. Either way, here this morning, Luke chapter 2, let's begin with verse 40 and read through the end of the chapter, verse 52. Hear now the word of the Lord. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was twelve years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. So, and now so it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature, in favor with God and man. Amen. This story is something of a famous one as it sits alone in that otherwise unrecorded period of Jesus' life. His childhood. His development is largely unnoticed by the gospel authors. We get his birth very dramatically. We get the theological context of his birth in John's gospel. But most precipitously, the gospel writers tend to hasten right to the start of his earthly ministry. His baptism, his trial in the wilderness. In fact, we see that on the next page in chapter 3 of Luke's gospel. But Luke gives us this one little vignette, this one little story about the boyhood of Jesus. And he bookends it with verse 40 and 52. It says in verse 40 that Jesus, the child, is growing strong physically, but also spiritually, filling with wisdom, with the favor, grace upon God, upon him. But then in verse 52, we see that Jesus is again increasing, that is growing, 
in wisdom and in stature. That's that physical and spiritual component. In favor with God, notice the addition, and man. So Luke's thrust in including this one random little boyhood story for Jesus is that addition. How Jesus grew in favor with others, other human beings. You see, he was born with the favor of God upon him, verse 40. He grew in wisdom and he expressed that wisdom, verses 41 through 50. And it was that manifestation of wisdom that made him so favorable in the eyes of fellow humans, that marked him as so distinct. We might say it this way, the hallmark of Jesus' childhood experience was his capacity to learn. He did not outshine everyone else, we are at least not told in the text, by all the different metrics we might celebrate about humans. It was his capacity to submit to his parents that first stood out about him. The first recorded message from Luke is Jesus' ability to submit to human authority. Jesus' ability to listen to the teachers in the temple, to ask them good questions that get him good answers. It is his ability to learn. Surely this rings some bells with us. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Please turn with me to Proverbs chapter 1. We're going to begin this morning in Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. This will serve as an introduction to the overall book, as I believe Solomon intended it to be, as well as a sermon itself on these verses. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Here again, the word of the Lord. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, to the young man, knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase learning, and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel, to understand a proverb and an enigma, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. My son, hear the instruction of your father, and do not forsake the law of your mother, for they will be a graceful ornament on your head and chains about your neck. Amen. As a young teenager, I was sitting across the kitchen table from a big, burly, bearded man. He played the guitar in our church uh, worship service with the uh, little praise songs that he so loved to sing with his eyes closed and tears streaming down his cheeks. You know those big mountain men who are just really sensitive? He's going to love this illustration. And uh, sitting across from the kitchen table from him, we had just reviewed what would be my responsibilities as his new gopher. I would go for coffee, I would go for donuts, I would go for tools when in supplies when he wanted and needed them. We had just gone over what I would be compensated for being his gopher, far more dollars than I had ever imagined making as a teenager. 
He was a very generous man. Finally, he leaned back in his chair and he held up his bear-like paw and he said, Noah, there are three things you need to know about plumbing. He was a plumber. And I was going to be his helper. Number one, hot on left. I nodded sagely. Oh, yes. Inside, I was full of terror. Hot what? Left where? I don't know what that means. Number two, water runs downhill. I felt a little better. I thought to myself, yeah, I've I've seen that. Okay, that makes sense. What does that have to do with plumbing? I was in trouble. Number three, payday's Friday. I said, okay, that makes sense. Okay, we're good. And sure enough, over the next two years, no matter how big the project, no matter how complicated the blueprints, no matter what kind of mess we got ourselves in, time and time again, I found these three things were true. The hot water's on the left, and it runs downhill, and there was a paycheck on Friday. It was the only thing I needed to know. Proverbs are important. They give focus to our lives. They orient us to what is true and what is real and inescapable. They clear away all the clutter and all the noise. And they hand us one little nugget and gem and say, here's the truth. Here's the reality. And they make things simple and plain. Proverbs are these pocket-sized poems that travel with us in our hearts and in our minds, allowing us to bring the truth with us into any situation. Friends, the truth of us from Solomon this morning is that God's wisdom makes life good. God's wisdom is what makes life good. So I beg you, both this morning and throughout the week and time to come, come and listen. Come and listen to the wise. God's wisdom makes life good. So come and listen to the wise. I would beg you that as I give you that main point, don't overanalyze the meaning of those words yet because I'm going to unpack them, of course. And part of the trick in Proverbs is you have to unpack definitions lest you leap to conclusions that land you in the wrong spot. So don't overinterpret what I just said just yet. But God's wisdom makes life good. So come and listen. Let's develop this a little bit by beginning with our author. In verse 1, we are introduced to the author of the book of Proverbs. His name is Solomon. He is called the son of David, the king of Israel. This is the same progression that we find at the beginning of the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon apparently preferred this particular sequence. But it's also not just a literary convenience. There is theology embedded in Solomon's choice to do this. That is to say, Solomon is not merely the second son of Bathsheba. That is the one who lived. The one who survived David's sin. He is not merely that. He is the son of David. That is the promised king. The one who God swore about in 2 Samuel 7. He is the covenanted king. The rightful heir to the throne of David. Hopefully this language is causing shadows and figures to arise in your mind. When Solomon writes the book of Proverbs, he is not writing it out of his private stash of wisdom. He is writing it as the promised king, as the covenanted king, as the heir to the throne of David. Might I say it this way? 
as the type and foreshadow of Jesus. He is writing in his messianic office as the one who represents the coming Christ. Secondly, he writes it as the king of Israel. This is not only a messianic book, this is a book that is of royal authority. It has been compiled together by Solomon, not as editor, nor as author. Those who know chapters 30 and 31 know that Solomon didn't write them. They are not, they are not, I lost the word, written by him. They are not credited to him. They are given to other men. In fact, they are given to another man's mother, Lemuel's mom. He's not the author of every proverb in here. We know from studies in ancient Near East, some of the proverbs that are called Solomon's are actually older than Solomon. And so, even those are some not all his as author. Secondly, we know that he's not the editor because halfway through the book, we're told these are the Solomon, the proverbs of Solomon that were collected by Hezekiah's wise guys. And so we know that it was put together after Solomon was long dead. So the way in the which this book is Solomon's book is the same way in which the Psalms are David's. They are his in that he is the type and shadow of Christ in the wisdom tradition of Scripture. Just as David is a man after God's own heart, and all disciples of Jesus who would likewise want a heart after God should sing and read the Psalms so that they might be discipled by Christ himself in how to feel as God would have them feel. So in like manner, the book of Proverbs is the teaching of Solomon, that type and shadow of Jesus, who would train us in how to think the way Christ would have us think. This is the wisdom of the Davidic king. This is the wisdom of the king of Israel. This is the wisdom that can only be found fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This then becomes my first lesson for us, friends. If you read this book without Jesus, you will end up a moralist or works righteousness-based person. You cannot leave Jesus out of the book. In fact, Jesus gave us that hermeneutic in Luke 24. He taught his disciples... All of these things, the law, the prophets, the writings, speak of me. It must be Christ at the center of this book. It is him of whom it speaks. This is our first important lesson, so that when I say to you, friends, God's wisdom makes life good, God's wisdom is the Solomaic way of saying Jesus. Jesus makes life good. The wisdom of God, Paul says, is Christ. Christ is the fullness of the wisdom of God in flesh. So my friends, don't jump over Jesus when you dig into these Proverbs. Secondly, as we move from the author, Solomon, as type and foreshadow of Christ, we see then the purpose. What is the purpose of these Proverbs? In verses 2, 3, and 4, Solomon lists out, rather unexpectedly but dramatically, a sequence of four verbs. To know, perceive, receive, and give. 
That is to say, Solomon imagines this experience to be largely passive. That the one who comes to the book of Proverbs must humble himself or herself to know, to perceive, to receive. But he also notices it to be something of an intellectual exercise. Knowledge, instruction, understanding, verse 3, an instruction of knowledge, justice, judgment, equity. There's data we're going to have to learn. There's content to our faith that we are expected to understand and intellectually wrestle with. Solomon says the purpose of these Proverbs is to build in the brain of the believer truth, justice, equity. The content of the world, knowledge that is right. But notice also in verses 3 and 4, sorry, verse 4, he says that he means to give prudence to the simple, to the young man, knowledge and discretion. It is not enough that your heads get swollen big with all the information that Proverbs has for you. That's like handing you a sharp sword and saying, go have fun. This knowledge is perilous. This knowledge is the inspired word of God. It is a sharp, two-edged sword. It is dangerous. So Solomon says that it is his goal not only to fill you with wisdom and knowledge, but with discretion and prudence. That is to say that you would be skillful with this knowledge. That you would rightly use this knowledge. That you would know when to use it and when not. When to nestle it into the grip of love, that truly your knowledge might be a sharp two-edged sword, but that it might be the arm of love that wields it, so that it might rightly cut, or might rightly refrain from cutting in due time. This is Solomon's purpose, to make our minds wise, both knowing and skilled in knowing. There's an immediately available illustration of this distinction. You've probably heard it said, I know it's all over Facebook, knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad. It's information that you skillfully employ in your life. You don't mix the tomatoes with the other fruits, even though it is technically a tomato. For those of you who relate more to this, I kind of looked at that illustration and was like, yeah, okay. Mine was my childhood experience of discovering a screw is not a nail. Can you imagine that one? You put the screw in the wall, you hit it with the hammer. Do you know what happens? Ricochet. The hammer comes back faster than it went forward. My friends, that is wisdom. It's not enough to know this one has threads on it. It is wise to know don't hit it with a hammer. So it is that Solomon intends for us to fill our minds with this skillful deployment of knowledge. This too points us to our need for Jesus Christ, who is himself the love of God in flesh, and who is himself the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. My friends, we must be a people who know the full content of what is about to be presented to us. But we are also those who should exercise wisdom and discernment and prudence, knowing when to speak and when not to speak, when to sheathe the sword and when to unleash it and swing it, 
This is what Solomon's ambitious aim is for us. That he should train us to not only know, but to use knowledge well and wisely. So then thirdly, friends, if we're going to come to this text, and we're going to discover from our teacher, ultimately Jesus, what it is to know and how it is to use it, The thing we're going to preeminently have to do, verses 5 and 6, is listen. We're going to have to learn to listen. Like faith in Romans chapter 10, the organ by which wisdom comes into a human being is the ear. Solomon says, a wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. Notice first that Solomon has switched the object of his instruction. In verse 4, he said that his purpose was to take the simple, that is the ignorant, the uninformed, and the young man, that is the unexperienced, the unskillful. You have simultaneously the minds of humans that lack knowledge, but you also have the young humans who lack experience. And Solomon says that's his object, to take those people and to fill them with knowledge and to fill them with experience and skill. But now in verse 5, he introduces this new person, the wise man, the man of understanding. Well, where did that guy come from? He came from those four verbs that Solomon laid out in verses 2, 3, and 4. To know, to perceive, to receive. By putting the simple and the young on the receiving end of his knowledge and instruction, Solomon has made of the simple knowledgeable persons. Solomon has made of the young man a wise person. His point is to begin with the raw material of humanity, the young and the ignorant, and to train that person up into, notice verse 4, to give prudence. To givers. You see, my friends, we must be careful that we do not merely approach the book of Proverbs in an entirely passive way. We must begin in humility, passively receiving the wealth of wisdom that is here. But we are to expect that Solomon will train us up into being teachers. The goal isn't that we should become better students, better students, better students. The goal is that we should one day advance to where we could be called wise and those of understanding. To attain to that mastery, to reach that level, Solomon says one must become very good at listening. They must hear and increase in learning. They must attain wise counsel. That is, acquire wise counsel. How many of you can relate to this verb, acquire. I won't pick on you and your particular December activities, but if you're anything like the rest of America, there's lots of things going onto the credit card and being acquired. That's what Solomon has in mind. Of all the things you're buying in life, are you buying lots of wise counsel? There was a joke that went among a few RP pastors this last week. You are called... Officially, by those who know these things, a book hoarder, if you own in excess of a thousand books. We all looked at each other and went, oh, 
goal. But we are requiring wise counsel. That, that's our defense. That, that we are not just hoarding books. We, we are hoarding wisdom. This is what Solomon has in mind. That to make mastery of wisdom, we must be a people who constantly give ourselves to the acquiring of wisdom and of knowledge. To listening to the wise. Listening to others. Opening our ears and our hearts to receive what is available in the thoughts and feelings of others. The wise will hear and listen. The one of understanding will surround himself or herself with wise counsel. This is the exact practice we saw of Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 2. He modeled for us this. Where should they have expected him to be? For three days they walked the city. Is he with all the marketplace people? No, he is not. Is he hanging out with all his friends and the juveniles in the street, kicking the ball up and down? No, he is not. These are all very good things, by the way. These are things Jesus did at other times. But in the story that we have at Luke chapter 2, he is surrounded by teachers for three days, drinking in their wisdom. He is immersing himself in wise counsel. And my friends, that is something we must learn to never outgrow. To never think, oh, I've arrived. I don't need wise counsel. One of the greatest mistakes we can make in our development, both as Christians and as individuals, is to arrive at the place where we stop seeking mentors. Where we stop seeking partners. Where we no longer allow voices to reach into us. For this reason, my friends, I would urge you, many of you have done well in bringing into your life prayer partners and Bible reading partners. Those who have the capacity to add to it, I would say, consider having a proverb partner. For those of you who cannot add, I would say, consider adding a proverbs-based component to your prayer life or your Bible reading partnership that already exists. Because ultimately, this book is acquired best not through the eyes, but through the ears. You see, in our world, we read. And that means think inside our brain. Most of us in America were trained and still practice the routine of not reading books, but of imagining the words on the page inside our mind. It's not the same. In Hebrew culture, to read something meant to make the noise of the words out loud. And when they say read it, they mean out loud. And when they say hear it, they mean that you're reading it out loud. The best environment in which to absorb these truths is in fellowship, in community, in friendship. Consider as we walk through Proverbs together, finding at least one partner, mentor, friend, who can talk with you about the Proverbs that we have to discover so that you might hear the proverb and not simply see it. For those of you who are drowning in despair and saying, I can't add one more thing, don't worry, coming and listening to sermons still counts as hearing the Proverbs. We're good. Okay. So come and hear the Proverbs. So this is the author, Solomon, the type of Christ. This is the aim and the purpose to turn the ignorant into experts, to turn the inexperienced into master mentors. And this, then, is its means or method that we should listen, that we should listen in the company of one another. 
In this way, then, we can understand proverbs, enigmas, the words of the wise and the riddles. This is the wise counsel of which Solomon speaks. That together these four things describe for us the wise counsel. Proverbs, enigmas, words of wisdom, and riddles. Notice, my friends, none of these say simple, easy, accessible things. There are no tweets here. There are no Facebook posts here. Just because he fit it into 140 characters doesn't mean it's not going to take you a lot of work to understand it. He made it simple. He didn't make it easy. My friends, there is a struggle to this listening. Not only must we actually read it aloud, not only must we actually read it in company with one another, but we also must struggle with the concepts. A proverb does not unpack its treasures lightly. It is a pocket-sized poem with a world of wisdom within it. And it must be unearthed and opened up. An enigma is a mystery. Something that does not on the face of it present its meaning. It must be mined. It must be dug into. The words of the wise are likewise heavy laden and enriched with truths that must be sorted through and comprehended and applied. Their riddles are confusing and perplexing. This is a mental exercise that, is to re- that will require of us exertion and effort. My friends, lean in and listen. This will require some effort, but it is well worth the reward. If then the author, Solomon, aims to make of us master mentors of those who would live in life, and he wants us to do it by listening carefully, he then gives us those to whom we should listen, beginning in verse 7. Most famously in all the book of Proverbs, Solomon says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. This, hands down, was the trickiest part of preparation for this sermon. How do I unpack this phrase in under five minutes? There are hours that goes into these next few minutes in terms of distilling the richness of this. The fear of the Lord, in short, my friends, Solomon means for us is that reverent affection that longs to please, that longs to fulfill the desires of. It is that reverent abhorrence of displeasure. The fear of the Lord is that awe-inspiring desire to do whatever this one wants. Do you guys remember being passionately in love and living in the utter horror of embarrassing your significant other? That's like the tip of the iceberg. The fear of the Lord descends, or rather ascends, from there. It grows up into this flourishing and all-consuming passion. We are told throughout the scriptures that the fear of the Lord is what keeps us from sin. The fear of the Lord is what draws us to God. The fear of the Lord is that clear sense of who He is. That if I know Him, I reverence Him. If I know Him, I love Him. If I know Him, I obey Him. And that is the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom. It is fools, Solomon says by contrast. And notice that this is a moral word and not an intellectual one. We use fools in a very casual and flippant way to say people who don't think so good. 
That's not what Solomon means. A fool is a morally bankrupt person, an atheist. A fool is someone who pretends there is no God. See Psalm 14 or 53. The fool has no fear of the Lord because the fool has no knowledge of the Lord. Not knowing who God is, the fool ignores him and does not live in reverence of him. And so despises the wisdom that makes life good. And so despises the instruction that makes life lived well. Friends, we've got to know God. Draw near to God. It is the knowing of God that will begin us on the path of knowledge. Who should we listen to? Above all, listen to God. Listen to the Lord as he speaks in the scriptures. This is the beginning of wisdom, says Solomon. But secondly, and embedded right on the heels intentionally, Solomon says, my son, hear the instruction of your father and do not forsake the law of your mother. There are two reasons Solomon sets up in the preeminent position the fear of the Lord. It says, if you would be wise, you will reverence God above all others. And you will make him the loudest voice in your life. And you will make knowing him the clearest and most compelling passion in your heart. If you will be wise, whatever God tells you, you will say, yes, sir, and it is done. If you will reverence him, then your life will be well-ordered. He says, secondly, if you will listen to father and obey mother. Solomon says this for two reasons. First, father and mother are those fifth commandment examples of human figures who are in authority. He's referring us back to that fifth commandment. That first commandment with a promise. Honor your father and your mother so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. I'm grateful that God made that a promise that is positive. I have often told my children the negative version of that. Dishonor your father and your mother and you will die quickly and painfully. My friends, that's the inversion. That's what it means. Honor your father and mother and you will live long in the good land that the Lord is giving you. Dishonor your parents and you die painfully in the wilderness. That's the inversion. That's what it means. My friends, how do we not see that in our experiences? What do your parents say? Eat the green food. But it tastes terrible. Yes, but it keeps you from dying. It builds up the health of your body. What do your parents say? Don't chase the ball into the street. Why? Because you don't get run over by a car. Your parents' instruction saves lives. Parental authority is good. And it saves the lives of children constantly, continually. Parents, how many of you have been shocked at your children's perpetual desire to do what will kill them? And it is your authority and their willingness to submit to them that saves them. In like manner, we have the civil magistrate with authority. We have the elders in the church exercising authority. God himself knows that the fear of him is something that we learn slowly and sinfully and selfishly. And so he has graciously given us human authority. He has given us the good gift of human authority. If, if I may, 
I, I'm pausing for a moment and I'm kind of belaboring this little point in the text, right? Because you're, most of us are a bunch of Americans who have 60 years of being told that authority is bad. And I'm trying to disabuse you of that and convince you that God gave you authority because it's good. Because he loves you. And he knows that if you honor those who are in authority, if you keep the fifth commandment, you have a good life. Things go well. This is the wisdom that Solomon would have for us. That if we order our life first and foremost according to the fear of the Lord, and if we order our life secondly according to the authorities he's given us here on earth, then our lives are structured in a good and wholesome way. These are the things Solomon would have us learn in wisdom. All of these things, my friends, shake out and fall out from this sequence that is rooted in verse 1. Solomon is a son, the son of David. He has learned submission. He has learned obedience. But he is also the king. He is the one in highest authority in all of Israel. He has learned to be under authority, and so now he is ready to be one with authority. But even more so richly than this, Solomon, I told you at the beginning of the sermon, is a type and foreshadow of Christ. And did not Christ learn obedience from the things he suffered? Did not your Savior come and submit himself to the law which he had decreed? And did not your Savior come as a son of David and submit himself to sinful Joseph and sinful Mary and obey and honor his parents? He who is Lord of glory, maker of heaven and earth, humbled himself and lived in submission to his sinful parents and so grew in wisdom. And so grew in favor with God and men. Which is precisely what Solomon promises when he promises a good life. Notice verse 9. For they will be a graceful ornament about your head and chains about your neck. This is a metaphor that is somewhat lost on us. We live in a culture that doesn't adorn our heads or necks quite the way the ancient culture did. A graceful ornament, it it, it literally means a favor-inducing garland around your head. I I tried to come up with an illustration. I had four brothers on a dairy farm. I'm sorry. The best thing I could come up with is little girls stick flowers in their hair, right? I think I've seen them do that. They, They make themselves glorious. They adorn themselves with little flowers all through their hair. Sometimes it's just sticks and leaves, but it's, it's still glorious. They fill themselves with this adorning beauty. And ultimately, it draws attention. It draws the affection and the praise and the favor of those who are around. You hang chains about your neck, and they shine with the glorious brilliance And yet we see throughout the scriptures, both implied in this proverb, but also fulfilled in the New Testament. Christians are told repeatedly, don't worry if you can't put a lot of bling around your neck. Instead, put obedience and righteousness. Instead, adorn yourself 
with conformity to the image of Christ. This that Solomon is saying is that Proverbs are the path to a life that is well adorned with obedience and righteousness. We are then decked out with that righteousness that Christ imputed to us. We are then robed in that holiness that Christ has freely given to us. In a word, I might say it this way. Remember that it is only the citizens of the king to whom this book is given. Those who are already in a loving union with Christ. It is those who have been redeemed by Christ who are now called to follow Christ and live out this wisdom. We are robed then in the wisdom of Christ. He who is the giver of this book, the fulfiller of this book, and the effector of this book in our lives. He is the one who beautifies us, who dresses us up in his righteousness, in his holiness, that we might walk through the world as he did, having favor with God and man. With that in mind, my friends, do not seek favor with God and man as the end of this book. Remember well the warning and admonition Solomon gives in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. For inasmuch as Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, is that launching point of all the wisdom literature in the Bible, so Ecclesiastes 12 is its conclusion. In which Solomon again says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Here is my conclusion. Fear God. And keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Friends, wisdom begins because we reverence God. We warmly, affectionately live in the awe-inspiring love of him. Through his son Jesus Christ we are drawn into his kingdom. And enter into the glorious new hope and heavenly life we have. And so long to live as he would have us live. And out of that loving, bubbling heart of affection, we begin to obey. And it's out of this vision of life that we come to our conclusion. I get God. He is my inheritance. The glorious ornament of which our heads are adorned, the glorious chains about our neck, are the wisdom of God, which is Christ. In this way, my friends, Solomon hands us our first proverb. Summing up these Proverbs, God's wisdom makes life good. By that, we might translate it into New Testament language. Jesus gives you eternal life. And so he says, come and listen. Come and listen. Listen to the wise and learn. My friends, God's wisdom makes you wise. Come and listen. Come and listen to the wise. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have graciously spoken to us. That you have spoken to us by your spirit. And that you have spoken to us by your spirit through the pen of Solomon. That through this book we might know how to be wise. To live in the light of Jesus' coming. To live in the love of his grace.
to live in the freedom of his forgiveness, to live in the riches of his righteousness, to live in step with his spirit. We thank you that these things are all forerunners of this wisdom and pray that because we possess them in Christ, we might now seek to be wise and live in the wisdom of Christ. Oh, Father, adorn our heads with the wisdom of your word. Oh, Father, ring around our necks the glory of your wisdom that we might radiate the beauty and the glory of our Jesus into the world. Oh God, make us an obedient people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.